All right, so I'm interviewing... Uh, now, you're Professor, aren't you? Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University, yeah. yeah. Professor Clive Hamilton, and you've recently written this book called Defiant Earth, mm. which talks about the Holocene and the Anthropocene. Mm. Can you give me the basic premise? What is the book primarily about? Well, it begins from the scientific observation that uh, the Earth has uh, recently, in the last decades, uh, transitioned into a new geological epoch known as the Anthropocene, um, or the Age of Humans. And the basic premise from Earth System scientists is their claim, based on the evidence that they've gathered, that human beings have become so powerful and are having such an impact on natural systems that we have now changed the geological evolution of the planet, that we have shifted out of the Holocene, the previous geological epoch going back uh, 10,000 years, which was remarkably stable in climatic terms and remarkably clement. And it was that stability and clemency that allowed civilization to flourish. And now the uh, Earth System scientists are saying to us that we've uh, upset, disturbed, destabilised that climatic uh, kind of semi-equilibrium that we're in and we've now set the Earth on a uh, dangerous and unstable path. What are the main features of the Anthropocene? Well, the dominant cause of it, but not the exclusive one, is, of course, uh, climate change due to the burning of fossil fuels. And the point that is crucial to this, and which many people who haven't really taken a lot of attention to uh, climate change miss, is that... Climate change is unlike every other environmental problem in the sense that the impacts of climate change um, are cumulative because carbon dioxide accumulates in the atmosphere. And so it's not a question of, well, when it gets bad enough, we'll do something about it. I mean, what we've done by burning, digging up and burning fossilised carbon stored for millions of years under the ground and putting it into the atmosphere and also other parts of the Earth system, the oceans and the biosphere, we have uh, seriously disturbed the equilibrium of the Earth itself by transferring this carbon from a place where it was uh, immobilised and safe into places where it's mobile and very unsafe. And it's going to stay there. Uh, for a very, very, very long time until somehow that carbon, if it ever does, is immobilised and, uh, and rendered relatively safe. One of the best ways of illustrating uh, the longevity of what we're facing and why the climate of the Earth System scientists believe we have entered into a new geological epoch and that it is too late to turn back the geological clock is this remarkable observation. Scientists are able to make predictions about the next ice age and indeed the next ice ages that will befall the Earth under natural conditions. And ice ages come and go depending on a number of factors or forces that influence the amount of solar radiation that falls on the Earth. For example, where the Earth is at in its uh, orbit 
around the sun because uh, the the orbit is elliptical and so sometimes we're a bit closer to the sun and sometimes we're a bit further from the sun. Also the tilt of the earth varies and that affects the amount of solar radiation affecting uh, reaching the earth and indeed the earth earth wobbles on its axis and that's a predictable uh, variation in wobbling. So scientists uh, can measure all of these things and make pretty accurate uh, predictions about when the amount of solar radiation will decline enough to bring on a new ice age, and they anticipate that will happen in 50,000 years' time. But now they're saying something truly remarkable. They're saying that the ice age would come in 50,000 years' time except for the fact that humans have now warmed the Earth by one degree and uh, will unavoidably warm the Earth by at least one more degree and possibly uh, up to another two or three degrees, so up to three or four degrees centigrade, which would uh, in itself take the Earth into a completely different zone. But with this warming that we've already brought about and the amount of warming that is extra warming that's now locked into the system and which we cannot avoid, that will mean the Earth is warmer in 50,000 years' time. Uh, So much so that the next anticipated ice age will not occur. Uh, It will be suppressed. In other words, the warming that humans are causing by burning fossil fuels will be enough uh, to counteract the decline in solar radiation in 50,000 years' time and indeed quite possibly in the subsequent ice age in 130,000 years' time. Now, in your book, Define Earth, you use the term rupture and you're saying that the Earth's climate system will be disrupted. How disrupted, how chaotic, how much can we predict which way it's going to go? Well, yes, I do uh, use the word rupture. I think it's particularly important to focus on that because what we are experiencing uh, in the Anthropocene, which uh, system scientists now, after carefully reflecting on it and gathering evidence, suggest should best be dated as beginning after the Second World War, 1945 to 50 or thereabouts, when we went into what they call the Great Acceleration, where human impacts just went in from a gradual decline into a huge uh, steep increase. And so these decades uh, do represent a rupture in Earth history. So we're not talking about a gradual increase in human impact on the environment or change of nature going back hundreds or certainly thousands of years. We're talking about something uh, that's happened very quickly, in fact virtually instantaneously when considered in terms of geological time. So there has been a profound rupture in the way the Earth functions uh, so that the future will be very different uh, from the past. Now, one of the features of this is that we know, taking climate change, uh, that uh, the Earth is going into a very different phase and climate scientists can uh, make projections with a great uh, degree of certainty about likely levels of warming and some associated changes in climatic conditions like rising uh, sea levels and so on. But uh, there's another factor to be added in here which 
climate scientists are only now starting to grapple with, and more particularly Earth system scientists, because it's much more than the climate, it's the entire Earth system that's being affected. And that is that the usual way of thinking about the Earth and its future in terms of human history has been determined very much by models that are calibrated in terms of Holocene data. In other words, in terms of uh, a, a very stable Earth system operating in very narrow boundaries. But what we are now likely to see under the Anthropocene is a return to wild swings in the climatic situation, the climatic circumstances of the Earth, the kind of wild swings that characterised the Earth for hundreds of thousands or millions of years before the arrival of the Holocene 10,000 years ago. And this is going to make the Earth a fairly unfriendly place for humans. Well, humans like stability. I mean, it was only because of the stability of the climate that emerged with the Holocene that humans were able to settle down because the regularity of river flows regularly uh, accumulating and melting of ice on mountains enabled the emergence of agri irrigated agriculture in the so-called cradle of civilization, those uh, river valleys that drain into the Persian Gulf. It was that stability that allowed humans to settle and for civilization therefore to emerge. So what does it mean for today's advanced civilizations to have to go back to uh, climatic circumstances, to Earth system circumstances which aren't stable, which may in fact start to gyrate wildly around, certainly on a hotter Earth, but in ways that become far more difficult uh, to predict? Uh, have our advanced technologies, which have, after all, been aimed principally at allowing us to free ourselves from the dictates of na nature, uh, will our advanced technologies allow us to ride out these thousands, tens of thousands of years of um, climatic chaos? Or have we become so dependent on um, those systems like sewage systems, uh, electricity supply systems, a massive uh, food uh, distribution system that covers the whole globe. Are we so dependent on these massive integrated systems that if there is a break in one or more of them, we will be left floundering? Mm. Have we become actually so dependent on our technologies that if the natural world refuses to collaborate, then uh, we'll be in yes, big so trouble. We, we rely enormously on predictability, and I'm reminded of what happened in Kobe after the earthquake with just-in-times production systems. Now, I recall meeting Professor Will Steffen, and he was very particular about the word system. He said systems. Don't say to me systems, plural. Why is that? I was going to say I endorse that completely, but the reason I endorse it is because Will Steffen has taught me the truth of that. And it's actually, in a way, it's the most profound and perhaps subtle point that needs to be understood because it requires a shift in the way we think about the Earth. 
we're accustomed to thinking about the earth in terms of uh, phrases like uh, the environment, ecosystems, nature, all of which have a kind of usually implicit but sometimes explicit boundary around them, which defines them as a local or regional uh, collection of processes that we think about, analyse and attempt to transform or indeed to protect. But now we have to think of the Earth, the planet as a whole, as a single system subject to uh, a number of very big, powerful forces and hundreds or thousands of other lesser but nevertheless crucial processes. And this, the Earth, is, should be conceived of not as a static ball of rock with a green fuzz on top, you know, which we walk over and change and damage in places. It should be thought of as an entire system that functions as a complex, dynamic totality. And it's that system, that complex, dynamic totality, that we humans have disrupted. So can I use a metaphor and tell me if I'm on the right track with this? So I've got a car in my garage and the paint's a bit scratched and the wheels are a bit old and the bearing's a little bit wobbly, but it's still a car and it's a bit run down. And so if people with the more narrow view, maybe they're a mechanic and they say your fuel injection needs a, a, a tune-up and so on, but I think the, looking at the totality of the car as you're describing, the car no longer operates at all in the way it used to operate. In some fundamental way, the car in its entirety is now damaged and all those accumulated little insults have started to affect its overall performance. Am I on the right track with that? Yes, yes and no. Yes, in the, in the way you, you describe it. Uh, and what you're describing is perhaps the kind of entropic processes that act on a car, you know, that it is a collection of... Um, the car just getting older. It's getting older, and it's falling apart. You know, I mean, like, literally, the, the atoms and molecules are slowly sort of deteriorating, falling. If you left it out in somewhere over 100 years, it would rust and actually disappear. That's the way we should think about it. But if you, just, if you think of a car as, a, as, as you describe it, a mechanical assemblage, then that's not the way to think about so the car, system. If I can interrupt, a car is not a living system. It's not a, a, a systematic, functioning, integrated, complex system. It's a collection of components uh, which are designed to do a range, a range of different functions. It's a, it's a designed system. Yes. So, so we shouldn't think about the Earth system in the same way as we think about a car, which is a mechanical assemblage. And one of the ways of illustrating this is through... Earth system scientists, have, have, even though they use the word system, they very much want to move away from the original idea of systems which emerged in the 1950s, which was a great breakthrough in itself, but an Earth system is really something quite different. And one way of illustrating this is through the concept of an, of an emergent property. And 
This is quite a hard concept to explain, but it's really quite crucial, and that is that certain th- in a system like the Earth system, certain things happen that have no mechanical explanation, that have no kind of logical set of causes that leads to an outcome. And an emergent property is something that functions like that. The Earth system scientists have observed things simply emerging, but you can't trace the causes. I mean, the, one of the most dramatic might be... Well, I'm thinking, sorry, of an analogy is the human brain, and Daniel Dennett says there is no seat of consciousness in the, in the human brain, and that Descartes thought it was the pineal gland, but really it's the brain functioning as a whole that it produces in uh, consciousness. Yeah, I think that's a very good example. You, you can't explain consciousness by trying to break it down to atoms and molecules and... And, and, and electrical connections with them in well, it'd be the like watching a movie and, and just saying a movie is just a series of scenes or the movie is a bit of music or music is a bit of plot. No, yes. when you watch a movie, you have a feeling of a thing called the movie yes. and it's all of those things and somehow the concept of a movie emerges from that. I think that's a very nice uh, way of pointing to human creativity. The, the creative process is impossible to explain through you know, its component parts. Mm. And if you, if you try to break it down, you lose then you'll it. lose it. It's gone. It's gone. So uh, 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 creating something like a film or, or a book um, is emergent, but it emerges out of human brain. Um, another, perhaps the, the kind of mother of all emergent properties is, is life itself. Uh, there's something that went on there that, yes, you know, the scientists, some scientists try to explain it in terms of, you know, the, 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 the super, you know, certain molecules just happened to come together in some particular way and it was a kind of an accident that happened when, you know, things just happen on Earth because of the situation. I don't think too many people, and certainly not the more deep-thinking scientists, and certainly not the cosmologists, they don't think of life that way. They think of it more in terms uh, of an emergent property that belongs to the Earth system. Well, I've actually interviewed some cosmologists, biologists, astrobiologists, and I asked them to define life. And they said, we, we can't really define it. It's, it's, it's too difficult. But uh, if we're now facing a future where the Earth system is so unpredictable, we're flipping into chaos or extremes, and, and it's going to gyrate from one extreme to another, how do we respond? Now, the other day at your book launch, I asked you a question. I said, what do we do about this? Because I am by nature a problem solver. And you said the answer is in thinking, but I wanted to follow up on that and get a sense from you, well, if our response is to change our thinking, how do we change our thinking? Um, This is a a very hard question. Let me just explain why I gave that answer. We, We, particularly we in the West, have a kind of immediate demand that when there's a problem, we think of a solution. That's fine, but what do we do about it? Uh, but there are certain problems, issues that are so large and, and are so profound that if we l- launch into some way of trying to respond to them, using the kinds of thinking that 
we're accustomed to, then we can't solve it or we keep doing the things that actually make the problem worse. Now, I'm not saying we should stop trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, of course not, but when it comes to the Anthropocene, what I'm saying is that this is a truly profound event in not just human history, but actually in Earth history. And so I think that the implications are vast uh, on a par with the way in which the arrival of the Enlightenment and modernity changed the way we in the West think uh, and also think about ourselves, define ourselves, the kind of being that we are. Because let's remember that this so-called Western naturalism, which is the kind of ontology or how we define what we are as beings, isn't just how the world is, it's a very particular expression which arose out of certain cultures at a certain point of time. And I'm saying that I don't know what will emerge, but I'm confident in saying that the Anthropocene will cause, over decades probably, a really profound rethinking of what we are as beings and what our relationship is to this this Earth uh, that we live on. And so, although we shouldn't stop doing what we're doing, I'm saying that if all we do is leap to action without stopping and, st and starting to think, well, what have we become, uh, then we will miss the profound importance of the Well, if we're talking about the way that people think, one thing that concerns me deeply is the way people think. So you've written this book and also Requiem for a Species and Earth Masters, and there's some pretty dire messages amongst all of that. What happens if we fall into despair? And, and I'm reminded of the great scene in that movie Downfall at the end of the Third Reich. It depicts the bunker in Berlin as the Soviets are rolling in from the east and the Allies from the west, and they had a party. They had an orgy because they're screwed. And it's called Disaster Euphoria. Is there a danger? I mean, we. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you would say, don't say something just because it's not true so that we feel good. But is there a danger that we're going to fall into something like that? Oh, look, I think there's a risk of that. And some people will do that. Perhaps some people are doing it already, those who really grasp the implications of the science. But I argue that when you do listen openly and honestly to what the world's best scientists have been telling us for a long time now and are telling us with ever-increased urgency, and when you recognise that we have changed the world so much that we are going into a hot future and that no matter what we do now, we can, we can certainly mitigate it, but we can't stop it or reverse it, then the natural human response is to despair. If you cling to hopefulness that, you know, Elon Musk will invent some energy technology that will get us out of this mess, then you're deluding yourself. I mean, look, I hope Elon, Elon Musk or someone does invent a fantastic energy technology that, uh, or more particularly, we have a political rather than a technological revolution because we don't need the technology. We need the, we need the political and social change, as we know. And we rap rapidly reduce the world's uh, emissions of uh, greenhouse gases. I mean, I hope that will happen. Desperately, I hope that will happen. 
But when we look at it, even if that does happen, when we look at the kind of future we're going into, it's natural to despair. So the question is, are we going to become stuck in that despair? Are we going to uh, engage ourselves in uh, disaster euphoria? Or are we going to go into the despair, face up to the full truth of what we're doing, and then come out of the despair, as humans do, and start working as hard and effectively as we can? Is that a little bit like the stages of grieving, anger, denial... I can't remember the five or seven or however many. There are something sort of absolutely into that. Yes, absolutely. And, and and I talk in Requiem for a Species. I talk quite a bit about grief and the way in which it's it, it's many people are grieving for the future. Uh, when the book came out. A lot of people were very shocked and, and kind of didn't want to know that. When I say people, I talk, I mean environmentalists and uh, some scientists. I was rebuked vigorously uh, by an ecologist at a Writers' Festival I went to when the book came out. He took me aside and lectured me on how you know this was irresponsible to write this book and I should be giving people hope. And I said to him, what, so you think we should lie to people? Oh, no, 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 I don't believe that. Well, you know, let's treat people as adults. Let's treat them as though they can deal with the truth. And if the truth means we, we grieve, then so be it. But, as you're suggesting, Rod, grieving is a process that has stages and we come out of it. It doesn't mean we uh, get over it and, you know, suddenly become happy and the same again, but we get through it and we start dealing with life. Well, Clive, you manage a wry smile as you speak, but how has this affected you? How do you feel in the face of all this? Uh, what day is it today? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, look, um, when I wrote Requiem for a Species, uh, I did so, I spent a year writing it after I'd read one paper uh, in particular, which just set it out so clearly and so brutally uh, that it sent me into a very deep depression which was actually the natural response and I came out of it just enough to to write the book Requiem for Species but for that year and the next couple of years I you know I was deeply depressed and disturbed by the whole thing and and, and at one level I still am I mean I asked myself how do I talk to my grandchildren about this? I don't know the answer to that. I don't want to talk to them about this. But on the other hand, you know, one comes out of it and you, you, you get on with it and you can become effective and uh, passionate and not be absorbed in it. I do know people who have become absorbed in it. I know people who have been immobilised by the grief and the despair and I don't blame them for that uh, people respond to these things differently I'm more worried about those people who have flashes of despair because the truth comes and hits them but they immediately suppress it close it off and carry on as if everything is alright I don't think that's the responsible way to, to respond to the facts So is our greatest enemy human nature? 
Oh, I always yeah, worry about <laughs> the term human nature because it's such a, uh, a slippery uh, concept. But no, there's no question. Humans have a whole range of psychological faults. All of us are prone to that, and one of them is wishful thinking, um, and another is uh, avoiding uncomfortable truths. And uh, sometimes engaging in wishful thinking and avoidance of uncomfortable truths or believing that technology will always get us out of it, that humans are naturally ingenious and solve every problem... These things are, on the one hand, they're ways of escaping from the meaning of the truth of what the climate scientists are telling us, uh, but they're also, we should be understanding here, they're coping mechanisms, because sometimes, you know, we just need to cope. Sometimes we can't live with the full truth of it all day, every day. It's too hard, and so we cope with it uh, in the same way that people cope learn strategies to cope with grief, so, for example. Perhaps live in the moment to some extent and you say it's a beautiful day outside, that might be kind of denialism, temporary perhaps, but enjoy it while you've got it and because you can, you can die many times a miserable death imagining a terrible future. You can, and look... Uh, the natural world is an astonishingly beautiful and uplifting thing, uh, but it's also this t- a terrible thing in the kind of classical meaning of the word terrible, um, and more so with the uh, advent of the Anthropocene. I mean, to be hit by a, a, a massive uh, hurricane or to be uh, stuck in the outback after five years of deep drought when everything is dying is nature at her most awful. And the Anthropocene means more of that, a lot more of that, as, uh, particularly as the century unfolds. Yeah, it feels like we're a couple of fleas biting the back of a dog and what the dog does next, good luck with that. Mm. Just um, if we're changing our way of thinking, the way we approach our actions... So the old idea of a national park was you put a fence around it and you keep animals and out as much people out to some extent and then you just let it return to its... And I'm doing the finger-waving thing now, the natural state, but we now know that you can't let a national park go like that because it, it just reverts to something that's not desirable, whatever that means. Mm. Is that a reasonable analogy for thinking about the, the global system, that it's something we just can't go hands off and say, oh, it might return to something more reasonable? Look, I, and this is a powerful message, or at least I hope it's a powerful message. It is for me in, in, in my new book, Defined Earth, that it's too late to believe we can just tread lightly on the earth, uh, live a simple, simple, simple life, and uh, believe that uh, nature will revert to her own course. Uh, We are this extraordinarily powerful creature now. We have to own up to the fact that that what we do uh, will determine, along with uh, those great forces of nature, the future evolution of the planet as a whole. Now, this is not an excuse, in my view, for 
geoengineering uh, or major uh, technological interventions aimed at controlling the functioning of the Earth system. We can't control the functioning of the Earth system. It's too complex. Uh, it's too capricious. It's too big. And it will, it will bite back very, very hard. But we can uh, use our understanding uh, in a responsible way, in a thoughtful way, to, uh, as rapidly as we can, uh, diminish the harm that we're doing, the disturbance we're doing to the Earth system. But we can't simply withdraw and hope that everything will revert to a natural state, because it won't. It's too late for that. If we, if we um, wound back, not that we can, but as a kind of experiment, wound back radically human impact on our environments, the Earth system would uh, is set on a different course now, and we, we're just going to have to respond to it. We're going to have to adapt. Any final thoughts, Clive? Well, I mean, I guess this book is, 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 in a way, it's a philosophical reflection on where we've got to. And so I hope that we will, uh, those of us who think about these things, while we continue to do what we do, those of us who are worried and do things to try to help in small or large ways, that we'll also start a process of trying to think through what kind of creatures we have become that we can disrupt the functioning of the Earth as a whole, change the way this planet hanging in the cosmos functions as, as an entity uh, with us on it. So that's what this book is a, is a call for. So uh, I'm anticipating that uh, we'll be thinking about this for a very long time. I think that's a probably a good phrase to use to sum up our conversation just now. What creatures have we become on this planet hanging in space? Thank you very much for your time, Clive. It's been a pleasure.